Welcome to the CRE Project Podcast, where investors, developers, brokers, and real estate entrepreneurs join together to grow, build, and execute on experience and strategies within the commercial real estate industry. We sit down with the top pros and leaders within the commercial real estate field and gain knowledge and insight from their success. We're glad you're here and look forward to connecting with you. You can find the CRE Project on all major podcast platforms, along with YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Trent, welcome on, my man. We're happy you're here. Thanks for taking the time. Man, this is great. I appreciate you guys asking me to come on. Yeah, yeah, we feel we feel honored. Absolutely. Um, so let's hear a little bit about your background, man. I mean, how did you get into the commercial real estate space, and you know, what lessons have you learned over the years? And let's talk a little bit about your bar business too, possibly. We can do that. I don't think I have a traditional background. I, my dad was a land surveyor, and so I was around the commercial real estate business quite a bit. Uh, my dad did not believe in child labor laws, so I went to work for him. <laughs> In sixth grade, the summer after sixth grade, I was on a field crew in a survey truck. And so I got exposed to commercial real estate at a young age through the surveying. And I always noticed that I was out in 110 degree heat with an instrument and the commercial brokers and developers were sitting in an air conditioned vehicle. And I was a little bit jealous of that. So I got to know quite a few brokers and developers in town because we worked with them through the survey company. And as time went on, you know, through my childhood and, and teenage years, I always thought that I would run the land surveying company. It, that that's what my future was going to be, that I would grow that company and that would just kind of be it. And I just leaned more towards the deal side of things as I, I learned what I really got excited about and I understood it better. I wasn't much of a, a land surveyor. I was decent. My dad's probably one of the foremost land surveyors in the state of Texas. Um, I am not. I, I just didn't take to it. I took to commercial real estate. I understood what the the goal was. And I think that's why I gravitated towards it. We had a family friend named Karen Simon. Her husband, Henry, was the attorney for the Hunt family when they tried to corner the silver market. So they were really interesting people and good people. Karen ran a brokerage firm here in town. She was one of the foremost brokers. And so I went to work for her. And I worked for her for a few years, leasing small shop space. And, and kind of to back up a minute, when I when I told my dad I was going to go be a commercial broker, not a land surveyor, he said, good luck. Don't call home for cash. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> uh, and I, and he, he basically told me, you know, I see that, but it's a hard road. You better have a steel stomach and don't come crying to me. Yeah. And he kind of let me get out there and fail. His general rule was he would get a meeting for me. And that was about it. So, but that was a huge thing at the time. So having the ability and his good name, frankly, I could call and get meetings with guys because they knew him and they would take a meeting with me. Along with that came a lot of responsibility where if I took that meeting and got a leasing assignment or got a sale, a listing or whatever I got, I better work my butt off and I better perform to the best of my ability or whatever the market allowed. So um, that was kind of where I got my start. I worked for Karen for a few years and I got to be close with a guy here in town named Jim Riefel. And he owned a company called Woodcrest Capital. He, Jim is historically, he owns, I don't know how you mean, at the time he owned 65 or 70 large shopping centers. And I became an acquisitions. He called me on a Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. And he's a big personality and literally said, you work for me now and hung up. 
like and I didn't know what that meant. So we didn't discuss. There was no. There was no salary conversation. He literally said, "You work for me now. See you Monday," and hung up. <laughs> That's awesome. It was pretty. It was pretty crazy. And I remember I knew of Jim really well because in the early '90s, everybody in Texas got hammered by oil and gas. Texas was not a fun place to be. It was a great place to be in the 80s when I was growing up. But about 90, 91, 92, we were all getting hammered. And I knew that Jim had figured out a way during that time period when everybody was going broke to figure out how to make money. And I wanted to be around someone like that. And I realized that maybe the salary, maybe I could make more money in the short term being a broker and doing that. But I was going to get to learn a lot from Jim. So I went went to work for him. That was about 02. And we did a lot of leasing. I did a lot of leasing assignments for him, leased his local shopping centers, worked with a lot of mom and pop tenants. And about 04, 05, he recognized that I was working hard, I guess. And the distressed real estate market was, we were watching that very closely. We saw a lot of fundamentals in the market that told us it might be a bubble coming. And he basically told me to get ready. In about 06, we started making acquisitions for that. And when I say acquisitions, I'm, I'm talking distressed shopping centers, non-performing notes, which is a totally new game to me. I had no clue at all what I was doing. But he threw me in the deep end of the pool and let me flounder around and kind of learn the business. The only thing that I did right during that time period, looking back, was show up and be willing to learn. And I wouldn't ask a lot of questions. He would tell me what we were trying to accomplish. And then I would go to Google or go to resources and try to learn it on my own and go back to him and say, this is how I understand what we're trying to do here. Where am I right or where am I wrong? And I tell you, that was probably the best experience anybody could ever hope for. Just to get thrown in the deep end of the pool, he trusted me. He trusted mainly that I would say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing when I didn't know what I was doing. And I would back off and ask for help. He also trusted that I wouldn't um, ask for help when I didn't need help, that I would dig in and try to learn it. So from 06 to about 2010, I was literally gone. I mean, one of the, it, it wasn't like I was off doing super complicated stuff. One of the main things I would do is when we were looking at an asset class to buy, I'd simply fly, fly there and look at it. Because in a retail center, it's a big dollar difference if it's first generation space or second generation space. And a lot of times the files that we had on the property we were buying were incomplete. There wasn't much to it. They said, hey, they owe the bank $5 million and we'll sell you the note for X, but we need the money in 24 hours. So I was on the move and really, really, I mean, it was it was a fun time, but it was a stressful time. We were busy. We were on. closing a lot of properties and we had a very short amount of time, but we still had to do the quality underwriting. So if, it, if a retail center typically took six months to close, we had 25 days. So I learned very quickly how to look at the big picture and the macroeconomics and see if this was a deal we wanted to pursue because we were getting so many deals thrown at us. We had to get through those deals and find the good ones quickly. And how were these deals coming to you, Trent? I mean, people knew that you guys could perform and and had capital ready to deploy or were you guys calling banks? You know, what did that process look like? All of the above. So Mm -hmm. one, it came from Jim had deep connections with debt buyers or debt sellers yeah. which everyone knows of Garnet Capital, mainly DeadX. And we were buying a lot of stuff from DeadX up in Boston. I got very close with those guys and they knew we would perform. They trusted us and they knew we would give them a quick no as well. So they were willing to show us the deals 
you know, not before everybody else, but, but quickly, but I literally, I think one year, I don't, I think it was Oh nine between about December 15th and December 30th, because all the banks were trying to get these bad assets. They wanted to be done with it. They wanted to get them off the books and go into the new year with a clean slate. The, the stat that I tell people is I went through 42 printer toners printing deal packages. <laughs> I did not leave the office literally for 15 days. I had Christmas dinner at my desk. I had an amazing, we're right across the street from TCU. So we had an amazing intern program. So I had a lot of guys helping me underwrite these deals. And we were going through a lot of deals very quickly and, and making quick decisions. And we made a lot of decisions and, and a lot of them were right and a lot of them were wrong. You know, I had people come at me today with the COVID situation saying, I want to buy distressed real estate when it comes to the market. And I say, guys, I don't know if you have the stomach for it. It's extremely quick decisions. It's an extremely expensive game. And it's a long game because a lot of those assets we bought in 2012 or 13 looked like unbelievably smart decisions. But at the time, the centers were see-through and a lot of them were on the sprawl. So it took some time and we had to hold and cash flow those properties or debt service them while they were empty. So it's it's not as easy as a game as people think it is. So Trent, what did you or what did Jim, both you guys look for in particular during these times? I mean, what was the decision making process when it went to, you know, actually pulling the trigger on one of these assets? And how many for, for how many opportunities did you get presented? Did you actually, you know, execute on? So I think that the math, and I was in the right place because the math we used wasn't very complicated. And, I, and I'm not a complicated math guy. My granddad told me, if you can't do a deal with four buttons of a calculator, don't do it. <laughs> you're, you're kind of trying too hard. And these deals were basically, if we could buy it for 75% of what it costs for us to build it, we bought it. It was that simple almost in the sense of, we, we bought a lot in Mesa, Queens Creek, Phoenix Market. Could we move uh-huh. that? 10, he, I didn't know. He knew that 1031 money would flow out of California and go to that Phoenix Market first. And we bought a lot out there. And basically, if it cost 150 bucks a foot to build the retail center, we could buy it for 100 We bought it. It was that simple. Wow. As long as the demographics were good, the traffic counts were decent, those types of things. Or we saw potential for the traffic count to get better with time. We went ahead and bought it. I'd say we probably bought one out of 10 deals presented to us. Got it. Wow, that's a lot. It's a lot. We I mean, lot as far as the ratio is concerned. We bought a lot of centers. And the other thing that I got involved in was when he would buy a note, which was, I was, they don't teach you about buying non-performing notes in college, but he was a major note buyer. And what I would do is I would fly and meet with the debtor. And it was typically developers like, like we are. And it was a really unique experience. And the reason it was unique was... As I mentioned before, we all got crushed in the early 90s in Texas. So my family, we were debtors on loans that were being called by the RTC in the early 90s. So I would fly and meet with these developers and we would real simply say, listen, we're not adversarial. You you owe the bank X dollars. We bought it for X dollars. And if you give us X dollars within a week, you could have it. We were very transparent and I got to come and have those conversations, which was ridiculous. I was 33 years old and I mean, look like a kid with these 55 and 60 year old developers that were unbelievably experienced and very reputable people. So they probably laughed when I showed up to the meeting because I was so young, but I would just sit down and, and say that. And I got to come from a place of empathy and not judgmental because yeah. we've been there and you a hundred percent been in those seats. Yeah. And you can get creative and, and help those folks. I mean, you don't have to foreclose on them and take the property. 
we're partners with a few of them now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've got a partner in Raymore, Missouri, who's a fantastic guy. And they, a bunch of people just got over leveraged and maybe their, their asset wasn't performing poorly, but the bank just had to call everything because they were in such bad shape from other bad decisions. So I learned to kind of go with those situations with let's get creative. Exactly what you said. You know, we'll let you back in the deal. We did all kinds of stuff. So the non-performing note business was one I learned and I've got a lot of enjoyment out of it. And we also got to deal with some people that, that weren't honest <laughs> and we dealt with them appropriately. So do you guys still do any of that right now in your in your current world? Oh, I mean, we'd love to, but the, the market's just not there. Yeah. I think that market's either there or it's not. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Would you consider your time with Jim, you know, obviously you value it, but would you say that he was kind of your main mentor in the business, really learning commercial real estate? Without a doubt. Without yeah. a doubt. What, what would you say your, you know, your biggest lesson learned from him would be? Well, I mean, it's really clear what I learned from him. And that was think about the relationships first and do business with good people and your life will be a lot easier and be transparent with what we're trying to accomplish. Even when it's making money, some people yeah. approach making money with trying to hide the fact they're making money. And, and we would literally walk into a room and say, this is what we're trying to accomplish. And it is what it is. And with Jim, Jim really put people first. He was a big giver. He created Christian camps in South Texas. I saw him do a bunch of stuff behind the scenes and not looking for notoriety that really shaped my life, honestly. Um, He never looked for press. He never did all those things. I saw him do some amazing things. I also saw him deal with people that weren't being honest harshly. (laughs) I mean, his deal was, if you come to me and be honest, we're going to work through it. If you're not honest, we're going to deal with it. And I learned a lot from him. I, actually, I'm texting with him right now. I'm trying to do a deal up in Montana, and the only track of land I can find is a, a large track of land. I just called him and said, or I texted him and said, will you buy this and let me buy an acre? And he wrote back, sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's that simple, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I was very close with Jim. I can't. Jim's very different guy, though. He had a life. He wasn't one of these guys that lived in his office. He would literally, at the drop of a hat, I mean, he has been to the North Pole three or four times. He went to the South Pole. I remember one time he was in the North Pole, had a sat phone, wasn't answering it. I had to make a big decision. He came back into town. I snuck into his office sheepishly and said, in this scenario, what would you do? And he said the exact opposite of what I did. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, well, I'm about to get fired. And he said, no, I'd rather you make a decision and make a mistake than not make a decision. Yeah. Let's go. And I learned a lot. What a great teacher. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't remember who said it. Was it Bill Gates or, you know, they they said, if you want to be... Uh, successful, you need to learn how to to double your rate of failure. You know, the quicker you fail and the more times you fail, uh, the closer you get to those successes. So I had never come from an environment where you could fail and not get get chewed out because in the survey business, if you fail or make a mistake, it costs money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it was a new thing to me. And I try to emulate that and how I deal with my guys. For sure. And I thought it was interesting because it's so true what you said that so many people struggle with being transparent in the fact that they're making money. And that's oftentimes where people, you know, get the reputation that they get. And it's unfortunate, but there's nothing wrong with, you know, making a buck. That's why you're doing deals, (laughs) you know, but that's exactly why. A lot of people, man, they just have a big, a big issue with that. So I think that's, I think that's definitely a good tip for sure. And I've, I mean, I've always really admired 
view and, and the way that you can kind of build relationships. I mean, talk to us a little bit about that, Trent. I mean, what are your kind of top tips when it comes to like building a relationship? I mean, you're in a very competitive industry right now with single tenant net lease development in a very competitive space. So tell us a little bit about that. How do you build a relationship? How do you maintain a relationship in kind of a competitive environment? And I, you know, I honestly, I have no strategy or I don't think about it. What I do think about is when I meet with somebody, is this person going to be honest with me? Are they going to be transparent? Are they of good character? Because there's a lot of people you could do business with. There's no reason to go do business with people that don't have good character. You can do that and you can make money, but your life is not going to be enjoyable because you'll always be dealing with crazy stuff. And I just don't have it. Money's not that. I mean, money is important to us because it, it pays the bills, but it's not worth me dealing with people that I don't trust. Clay, we just hear that over and over again, huh? Being, That's you know, it. having integrity in this business, paying it and, forward. And having integrity sometimes says, means, hey, I can't work with you on this. I have a conflict of interest. Just be yeah. up front. That's yeah. it. I, I sent an email this morning to a guy about a deal. And he said, hey, I've got a conflict on this. I can't help you. That's great. We'll, we'll circle back and do something else later on. Yeah. I appreciate that. A lot of people would try to play both sides of the fence. And I think that's where people get themselves in trouble. Yeah. But um, I do not try to force relationships. They either are, are good and we see the world similar or we don't and we don't do business. I mean, that's, it's as simple as that. I do business in, in places I enjoy going and I enjoy the culture. And there's some similarities. Like I don't do business in South Florida. I don't think I sell very well. And I don't connect with people in South Florida, in Miami particularly. Interesting. I don't connect in certain markets, so I just don't go there. I mean, it's okay. There's a lot of other places to do business. It's just a different world that I don't choose to be a part of. And yeah. We have to pick our battles. Trent, did you get into, were you doing brokerage and then evolved into development? Absolutely. I still don't consider myself, as far as being a development person, a great developer. I'm not a good guy to get permitting and pool utility. I work with a firm called Vaquero Ventures. Besides it being a great firm and just a perfect environment, I work with them because they have the infrastructure and the people to do those things. I do what I'm good at, which I think is sourcing deals and just talking to people on a daily basis and, and generating deals. And then when we know we're honed in on, a, on an intersection or where we, wherever we're trying to be, then working with the landowners, because I think I understand uh, as a result of working with, with Jim that there's a lot of issues that go into the decision to sell or not. And sometimes I can see what those different issues might be, be it tax whatever those issues are. So I basically am involved in a project from the sourcing of the deal when it starts to the land being under contract. And then I work with construction guys through that process to make sure we're on schedule. And if we're not on schedule, I communicate back why we're not on schedule to our client. Gotcha. And so to our listeners, can you just tell them what your professional title is? I would say developer. I mean, I am a yeah. developer. But um, I think of myself as just a, you know, a guy that it's a deal guy. I mean, Reefle was a deal guy and I came up in his school and, you know, if it's a deal, we'll do it. I've done some really crazy deals in my time. So. And so in your current environment, when you guys are putting deals together, are you guys self-financing these? Are you raising capital? We are self-financing. Mm -hmm. We are self-financing. We take bank debt. We, we yep. do the typical 80-20 deal. But other than that, we're self-financing. In the distressed time period, 
I wanted to do a big fund. And I, I was talked out of it because when you start raising capital from outside sources, you're talking about a whole different ballgame as far as accountability and paperwork and filing. And I just never wanted to get involved with that. I'd rather do a smaller project like we can self-finance than some large project with 50 investors that all hang out at the country club. I play golf at, and I've got to talk to them every day about it. And if it goes bad, then you lose friends out of it. I'm not willing to do that. Yeah, I agree. So what do you feel like is the most challenging aspect of kind of your daily work right now, Trent? I think the thing I think about every day is, and this is a detail of it, but how do I get to see the good sites before everybody else? Am I looking correctly and and allocating my time during the day via CoStar or whatever database it is to get to chance to look at these sites as quickly as they come in the market. So let's dig into that a little bit. I mean, historically, since you've been doing this kind of for years, I mean, what has been the most successful way for you to source deals? Well, it's interesting you bring that up because that's a big thought process I'm going through recently. Historically, the deals have been generated by brokers. And we typically, those are very tough deals. They've been combed over. Those intersections have been combed over, which means we're going to have to go in there and assemble a site and it's going to take a long time. The other aspect is site first, get the site, then present it to the tenant. So there's two schools of thought there and we, we actually do both. I'm a hundred percent every day. I'll have a broker call and say, Hey, we need to be at this intersection. And that phone call is either a result of, we trust you to execute this deal because of your experience or B we've combed over this site and there is nothing there. So we're going to put it on you guys. So deals get generated both both ways. You know that. So what's the best way to do it, in your opinion? I mean, I know there's both. There, where have you seen more success? Is that securing quality dirt and then finding the tenant or building the relationship with the tenant and then going to find the dirt? I think that, you know, we, we are a preferred developer for Starbucks and Dollar General, and we work at their direction quite a bit. In that regard, they tell us where they want to be and we go we go find it. That works. With other tenants, it's secure the site and then go take it to them. Yeah, it's, I always thought that, you know, securing the site and bringing it to the tenant, you know, feels like a smoother process, but man, it's hard. It is so hard. It does. And it, a lot of people don't hard. understand that. I mean, you're, you're trying to coordinate timelines and you're trying to get the tenant on board. And, you know, I mean, if, for anyone that's gone through a, you know, a retail development deal, I mean, even a single tenant development deal, I mean, with committees and everything, I mean, it's just that the timelines are so drawn out you know, and you're trying to manage, there's, there's a lot to manage as far as just personalities and money and different (laughs) groups all within a transaction. So it's, it's hard. It's really hard for sure. It it is hard. And I I think about, I talked to the the guys on my team, what what we do today is impacting us two and a half years from now. So true. Absolutely. And that is hard for people to be that patient. Everybody wants that instant gratification, but what we do today, and I, and I talked to my guys about, you know, one day is a week in our business. If we just kind of blow off half a day and don't put work in and don't do what we're supposed to do, that delays a project from getting done a week or two weeks. Yeah. It's an exponential delay when you when you don't for every every half day. But it is, it's amazing how many different personalities and pieces of the puzzle there are to put together. Um, I have 35 deals that I'm working on right now, and I bet that six or seven, I turn the keys over. But you have to work that hard on every one of them. 
And can I ask you a quick question, just as far as your organization is concerned? Are you guys using software or do you guys have a CRM and, you know, time management and staying organized? You know, you've got so many dates out there, uh, you know, for your critical dates, matrixes and so on and so forth. Just uh, curiously, selfishly, I'm wondering, you know, do you have a CRM CRM that you like that you'd recommend? Are you guys doing everything in spreadsheets or what's, what works for you? Well, we do everything in spreadsheets and our critical dates is all on our outlet calendar. This uh-huh. is managed by one central person in the office so that there's not confusion there. And, you know, with I think that I don't think this software question goes to exactly what you were referencing, but the software that's come out recently, I've actually been working on morning with Placer and it's unbelievable. Placer and AI? It's unbelievable. Uh-huh. And basically it's cell phone tracking technology that, can show you what locations are being visited the most and things like that. I mean, that's invaluable data. And it's been a big change for me. I'm 46 years old. When I started this business, you got in the truck and you drove around. And now people go, why are you getting in the truck? I go, because that's how I learned to do it. And they're like, we have Google Earth and Placer and CoStar. And I still tend to get in the truck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't don't know if that could ever get replaced. I really don't. So, I mean, all that stuff is nice. I mean, you know how much I travel when I do that because standing in that intersection is completely different than looking at on Google Earth. Yeah. Totally. But the young guys think I'm crazy. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm a huge advocate for technology, but I still feel like, you know, that I still feel the same way. I mean, you, you don't really understand a piece of real estate until you actually stand in front of it. You see the traffic flow, you see the, you know, demographic of the area, you get the feel, you know. Which yep, you exactly the feel. When people ask what I do for a living at dinner, I tell them I make illegal U-turns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we're, we're in good company on that for sure. Where Let me ask you this, Trent, where do you feel like most people go wrong in the development business? Oh, that's a tough question. I think that um, I think everyone that's in development business has gone wrong at some point or another because that's how we learn. I think time allocation. I mean, from a big picture deal, how do people go wrong? They, they get nervous and they're not transparent. They get themselves in a bind because they're trying to deliver and they want to do well for the client. And they just don't tell their client what's going on. The, the clients understand challenges, especially yeah. in today's market. But you have to deliver bad news fast. And that yeah, is not fun. That's a good tip right there. Mm-hmm. That is not fun, but you've got to do it. You've got to get on the phone and tell them what they don't want to hear. And I think that people get themselves in trouble when they don't do that quickly. So I've got another question for you, Trent. Are When you guys are looking at getting into a preferred developer role, are you flying out to the corporate offices and introducing yourself and, and showing them kind of a brag book? Or are those deals coming to you organically through your brokerage? You know, it could be all of the above, but are you guys out there actively procuring new clients to build for? Is that part of the business model or what does that look like for you guys? I think that more looks like historically where we've gotten involved with a few projects through broker network and then they see us execute and they say, hey, you guys are pretty good at executing it. You haven't missed a date yet. We'd like to expand the conversation is how I typically see it. Yeah. But our broker network is extremely important to us. Yeah. So a lot of it comes to the broker network, but the bigger relationships come after we've executed a few deals. Mm-hmm. Proving yourself. So that's, for sure. That's and yeah, you know, I always get nervous in these podcasts and things like this because I was taught to never acknowledge success. Just keep pushing 
and you do these podcasts and you talk about how you're successful. I don't consider myself successful. I mean, this is a long game and there's challenges, especially in today's world. You just can't ever stop and read your own press. Well, that's that that goes that reminds me of one of Clayton's favorite questions he always likes to ask. And Clay, you want to ask it? No, it's all you. Go ahead. You know, is there a point or was there a point in your career where you were like, yeah, all right, I made it. You know, mom, dad, look at look at me. I made it. I mean, to your point, you, you say you don't you don't feel like that or that you're successful and, you know, you stay humble and you keep grinding and. And that's why, you know, you're doing as well as you're doing. But is, is there a point or was there a deal that at one point you're like, you know what? I wrap my arms around this industry pretty good. I caught some rhythm. You know, I made it. Did you ever come to that feeling? You know, I think every son, and I think it was certainly the case with me, is out there trying to prove themselves to their dad. That was probably my entire 20s and early 30s. And for me, when I, Fourth is a pretty small town. And, when, and, and he was hearing through the grapevine that I was doing a good job or delivering to his friends and doing a good job for him. And I kind of get, you know, absolutely there's satisfaction in that. I mean, I was not a very good student. I was a on a good day, a mid-C student. I just couldn't sit in class for eight hours. I didn't care. And so that was a big deal to me. He would never let me know it. You know, I, I would make sure there was a, maybe a whatever scenario I was in, that he was aware of it. And he would always say to me that the successful guys wake up and work twice as hard after they close a deal than they did the day before. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the things he talked to me about. But yeah, there were certainly times when there's a moment where you, you can almost breathe because the commercial real estate business for a long time, there isn't, am I going to make it long-term? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that would probably be when I'm sitting, when I was in my mid thirties, sitting in some rooms that I was not qualified to sit in with some people that he looked up to. Mm-hmm. And so that was a pretty satisfying thing. For well, sure. Yeah, I, I think it is important to celebrate our wins because, you know, like you said, so many deals fall apart for reasons that you can't always control. So it's good to document those so you can look back and say, you know what, uh, this deal died three times, but we rallied and, you know, we got it done. So I always That's like to exactly hear about right. that. The, yeah. Those deals that die and you can bring them back and figure out what's the root of the problem. Those are the most rewarding to me for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Let me ask you this trend. I mean, you've obviously been in the game decades now. I mean, <laughs> what's, what's changed? Scary. <laughs> what was the question, Clayton? <laughs> were you, were you, uh, basically simmering on how old you are is that what you're that's exactly what i was doing i asked basically i mean how how has it changed over the years is it easier now is it harder now i mean harder okay explain that a little bit i think that the ready availability of information used to you could outwork somebody you Mm -hmm. could get in the plane and and go across the country you were willing to do things other people weren't but there's so much information available and there's just so many highly qualified smart people in the business it blows me away we've got an office full of 25 26 year old guys that get to work on time, go to bed at 10 o'clock, highly motivated. I mean, that's not how I was when I was 25 or 26 years old. If I closed a deal, I went fishing for two weeks, you know? (laughs) I just did. I don't regret a minute of it. But these guys today, they seem smarter. They're just, they just get it at an earlier age and they're in the game. So, I mean, that's what's blown me away is I've never had a team, an office full of these young, smart guys that actually paid attention in class and weren't fun. But they, they came out of the gate, just like you see pro golfers today. They come out of college ready to win. Yeah. And these college guys come out ready to win. They're super smart. They seem to understand the game. Um, you see them make some mistakes, but 
for the most part, I think it's tougher. I think, I think it's more competitive. I think that the, the triple net business, the single tenant development business is more widely known and understood. Exactly. You know, so I, I think it's more competitive for sure, but there's always going to be competition, no matter what you're doing. I mean, I, I don't like people that cry and say it was too competitive. Well, it's always competitive. So to that point, I mean, what do you feel like and what is, you know, what do you and Vaccaro feel like you guys do differently or are superior than, you know, your competitors? I don't know if we're superior. I think we have a bigger platform where we can digest and, and work more deals. I mean, to the credit of Vaccaro, it's a big platform and that platform can get scary. I mean, it's a big payroll and it's a lot of people and, you know, we have it all under one roof. It didn't happen overnight, but it takes a lot to build that platform. Mm-hmm. But I think the best thing we do, is, and this sounds so cliche, but it truly is our people. We have a lead attorney that has unbelievably great communication with the attorneys on the tenant side, good relationships. They know we're going to call and say, Hey, we got a problem here quickly. I think that's our people. That's the truth. You know, if you, I think without that, you don't have a chance without good people. So say that's not a, that's not a bad answer. So I think human resource is your, your most important resource. That's for sure. So we talk about talent retention and things like that. We're very blessed to have a, TCU very close. It's a great real estate school. Most of us came out of it and we have a great intern program. So they intern with us when they're not in class. They do 15 to 20 hours a week. They learn the system and then they become full-time deal guys. That's awesome. It's great. Where do you see kind of globally the industry going within the next, you know, five, 10 years? I mean, give us a little insight on where your head's at with with that. I mean, what are, what are your, what are your internal thoughts as it relates to, to retail and single tenant net lease development? I'll tell you, I think the single tenant net lease development business is going to continue to grow and move forward. Um, I think we're going to see, obviously, drive-throughs have been a big deal. It's, it's been surprising how well some of the QSRs have performed during COVID. My honest answer to that is I don't have a clue. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm staying very focused on what we do and trying to not get distracted by things that are not in our wheelhouse. And by that, I mean, I'm not looking for distressed real estate. I'm not wondering what's happening with the markets. I know exactly what's happening in our market and what impacts us on a daily level. And I'm focused on that. I mean, I got laser focused when COVID hit and said, let's focus exactly on what we do and nothing else. And that's what we're doing. Do you have any current worries right now? Uh, I think everybody does. Yeah. So share some of those with us. Oh, I think that, you know, it's obviously an intersection of amazing things going on with the COVID. We're in this big retail transition with Amazon becoming the, the massive player that it's becoming. I don't see that stopping. I drove to Cabela's the other day to buy something 30 minutes. They didn't have it. I drove home not very happy about sitting in traffic and bought it on Amazon. So yeah. almost 90% of the things we buy in our house, we buy on Amazon. I mean, that is going to have a big impact. And we all knew it was coming, but I think we've seen it accelerate with COVID. So it's almost, and it's a tough thing because you're a macro thinker like I am. You sit back and you go, okay, what is the impact of this? And how does it change our world? And, and are those former or old ideas truly gone? Or will they come back? I don't think it really affects me on a daily basis, you know, so I'm not really worried about it right now. I think that we are, there is going to be some opportunity come up as a result of COVID. And as Buffett famously said, the tide went out and it shows who's naked. I mean, that's it. You know, these, these retailers, I had this conversation yesterday with somebody, what the typical retail store has changed. 
it used to be a storefront where customers went in. It's more of a flex space now where you have retail showroom in the front and distribution in the back. Because if you're a retailer and you're not online, you're not doing 50% of your business online or whatever platform it may be, you're not going to make it. There's simply no chance. So how does that space change and how do we transition our existing space? I think one of my big concerns right now is if we continue down this road with COVID and the things that have impacted occupancy restrictions and things of that nature, we're looking at a major reevaluation and underwriting of, of real estate because real estate's on the restaurant side driven by occupancy. So if they cut these occupancies down, these rents that people are willing to pay are based on their occupancy when they executed the lease. We're going to have to reevaluate all those things. And that's a big deal. Well, and why why construction numbers continue to go up and up and up. You that's know? exactly right. That's that's what's challenging is real estate's expensive, construction's expensive. And to your point, if occupancy or if the consumer demands, you know, a a more spacious type of environment now where you can't have the level of volume that you had pre-COVID, it is going to be really interesting. Um, And it's going to be, it's going to make it, you know, difficult for sure to get ground up projects done. Because I think it's funny because a lot of times people think that there's all this money. And I mean, you make good money when you do development deals, but you know, a lot of times they're, they're pretty skinny deals. You know, there's not really a lot, a lot of meat on the bone a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, to sit there and try to, <laughs> you know, trim it down even more. I mean, it's, it, it makes it, you know, difficult for sure. Everyone's always impressed by the top line of a real estate deal, but they never look at the bottom line. Yeah. So true. But all that, when all that money gets distributed, it ta- you have to do a lot of projects to make a good living. And it's hard. I mean, it's as you know, it's hard of the family. I have in the last seven or eight years been much more conscientious about having balance. I turn my phone off. Yep. I try to be more present. I spent 15 or 20 years completely out of balance, but I felt like I had to do that to make it into this point of when did you feel like you could make it? You have to know when this justifies my attention at 10 p.m. on a Tuesday night and what is not important. And so we're going to see a lot of things change. I think that we'll probably get out of COVID without a major underwriting problem with real estate. But I think we're going to see some people have asked me what I think the legacy of COVID is going to be. I think it's one going to be very technology centered, just like this right here, where before I would go to the office every day where everyone's We've now proven the theory that people can work from home. So what's the impact on office? And I'm asking the same questions that everybody's asking. They're not yeah. they're not original questions, but it's going to be very interesting to watch play out. But I think the single tenant business is strong. I don't see any headwinds there. I don't see interest rates growing up. I thank goodness every day that I'm not a multifamily developer because of the construction costs in the past. If you planned a project 16 months ago, mm-hmm. permitted it, and went into construction and COVID, a massive multifamily project... You have a serious problem with the cost of lumber. I mean, our projects are impacted, but they're not that much impacted by the price of lumber. But those multifamily guys, it's a problem. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I I want to do a podcast and hear your thoughts because I kind of tend to think you're a little more intelligent. (laughs) Like you said, I think there will be some secular changes like Gannon and I have talked about historically. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of positive changes that come out of this but you know i I, you know retail i I was actually having this conversation earlier today with another guy and you know retail's been in a turbulent environment for almost a decade now so you know i don't know if we're as shaken as necessarily the office environment and i don't know if we're going to be affected as much as the office environment i mean i really my personal 
opinion is, is I feel like if you own a high rise in, in downtown New York or LA or Chicago, you're going to have a real, you know, rough couple of years coming up because I don't, I'm like you and everyone that we've talked to, we've had several guests on the show that have told us that it's going to be, you know, a hybrid type of climate moving forward where it's part-time in office, part-time, you know, working at home, kind of a hub and spoke type of play. And, you know, what is that what does that do to these office buildings? I mean, my, I guess my, the, the thing that I say the most, is I said, I think you're really going to have a hard time getting the, you know, administrative individual that had to fight three hours of traffic daily to go to a cube in downtown LA or downtown New York for the same job that they could walk to their living room and get done just as quickly. And just as efficiently. Those I are talked people. to a friend of mine that works in New York City, but he lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, when all this is over, are you going back to the office? He said, my vehicle will never head south on the 95 again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He is not going back. It. Yeah, I can believe it. So, I mean, the big question mark is truly what happens with these high rises? I mean, you know, and I mean, we can always have a drastic perspective but truly if you have a corporate tenant and the cfo's looking at that line item i mean it's going to be really interesting to see how those are repurposed and if they're you know if they're multifamily or there's some other use out there i don't know it's going to be really interesting to see but like i said everyone's been talking about that in the retail space for the last decade and now everyone's kind of pivoting and you know having that conversation relating to office so I do see a lot of value in my team being face to face. It's much easier for my whole team to be in the same building. We can get questions answered. We can work together. When you're looking at support roles and things like that that are administrative, mm-hmm. I think as a CEO or a CFO, it's irresponsible to not look at a major shift in how you do business totally. now that we've proven it can work. You can't could, ignore it. Could not agree more. And that's, you know, that's could not agree more. And that's exactly what, like I said, everyone's been saying is, you know, there's going to be a hybrid there for sure. And, you know, with, with how competitive talent is anymore, uh, if you demand a three hour commute and traffic, uh, you're probably going to lose quite a bit of talent. So it's definitely something to, to take into account. It'll be interesting to see kind of what happens in the near future. For it's sure. going to be a negotiating point on employment contracts. When you're recruiting somebody, the first thing they or the third thing they're going to say is, can I office from home? Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. So it's going to be an ongoing issue. Um, I have been very, probably more so than normal discipline during COVID. I mean, I wake up at six, I'm in the shower, I'm dressed like I'm going to the office. I sit in my, I think it's important, but the, a lot of people have not. But the hard thing about it is for me, getting in the car and driving to the office, I think during that process, I totally. get to the office, I work, I, I drive home, I decompress. And I think that that's important for a lot of people. So I I prefer to go to the office and will continue to. I like being surrounded by the synergy and energy of the team. But I don't think that's going to be the case for a lot of people. So we'll see what happens. I certainly would not want to own a bunch of buildings in New York right now. That's for sure. Yeah, it's going to be, like I said, going to be interesting to see what happens. So I think the the retail side is this is this COVID is the death blow to underperformers. It's just that simple. Like you said earlier, it, it just accelerated what was already coming. Absolutely. I mean, if you if you were, you know, not facing facts and retooling your business in the retail market, you were you were a goner. And you know, everyone thinks it's so easy. I have a little bit of experience of trying to be an online retail with multi channels. I was involved in a, a deal that 
it is very difficult because you have very tight metrics on which you can mark spend on marketing. And the other big pl- problem that the online retailers have that's it's being ignored is the returns business. Someone buys something and doesn't like it and returns it. That's a huge hit to your profit. Totally. So. I, it's going to be interesting to see how they, they adapt and deal with that. I don't know if there's a solution there. Yeah, or the way my wife likes to shop, they just, she has a stylist. They send her a box of clothes. She picks out what she likes and everything else she sends back, you know? And it's unbelievable. My girlfriend would go to the local store here, you know, not, you know, pretty expensive place. Mm-hmm. And she will buy truly three or $4,000 worth of clothes. She doesn't have to try them on there. She will come home. And then take the stuff back she doesn't want. Mm-hmm. That is crazy. Uh, and everybody does it. So yeah. I don't know how they're going to address that, but it's a big issue that no one's paying attention to. So it's going to be interesting to see how they how they deal with it. But, you know, I think these mom, I grew up with these mom and pop shops. I want to see them survive and I want to see them retool their business to where they can because it's not going to work the way it, it did a long time ago. It's just not. I love mom and pop tenants. So. And what do you what do you think developers need to do differently? moving forward. I mean, people are always talking about the tenants need to do stuff different. I mean, what do you feel like the developers and, you know, us as, you know, the influence as far as real estate goes, what do we need to do differently? Well, I think that goes to what we were talking And the reason I brought it up was we were having this conversation yesterday is what does the future small shop retail space look like? And the bigger question that the reason I had the conversation yesterday was, okay, all of this big box space comes online. Well, the traditional small shop space is 70 feet or or whatever it is. How do we take this big box space that comes available, retool it for what retail space should look like today and going forward with distribution, warehouse, whatever it is? I can't tell you how many small retailers I know that have their shop space and then they have a warehouse across town and they're driving back and forth all day. Yeah. The shape of this big box space is difficult. You know, it's, it's, you don't want a space that's 200 feet long. So how do we get this space and and maximize use of it, retool it? But I can promise you this, somebody will figure it out. You know, somebody will figure it out and how to do it. It's going to be a long transition though, but I almost to a point, it may sound bad. These underperformers and people that didn't retool their business in the modern world, I mean, kill them already. Like I I just, it's been been dying for eight years. Well, I mean, yeah. And I've told people that for the past, you know, five years. And again, this has been accelerated, like we've been saying, but I mean, we've had opportunities in, you know, Albuquerque, certainly in our market that, you know, these old archaic retailers that haven't adapted have gone under. And, you know, the, the, the supposed consequence of that is everything has been redeveloped into a more vibrant, you know, robust, more modern retail environment because of, you know, them going under. So it's not, you know, the headlines are always so negative, but in a lot of ways, you know, it's, That's exactly right. it's, it's, it's productive and it's, and it's good for the retail environment. It's good for, you know, the overall market to see that change and that shift. So I'm yeah, with that's you. That's exactly right. It's a more rewarding experience for the shopper and all those things. But it's a, it's going to be a painful deal for some shareholders. I can assure you that. I mean, you were you, you know I was involved in buying Gander Mountain out of bankruptcy, and I mean that process was unbelievable. Yeah. Just to see the bloodbath that occurs when they finally shut the doors on. After watching that, I understand why they kicked the can down the road as as, as long as they can because it's it's not fun. So there's going to be some pain out there, but I think the people that are smart, that's that's the approach I've taken with our tenants during COVID. I've said to them, if you guys are transparent and honest 
and I see you doing everything you can to survive, mm-hmm. we're going to work with you absolutely every step of the way. You do not need to worry about us. But if you were trying to go to work from 8 to 3.30 and not be online and not do the right things that are going to truly work and you're not being honest with us, we're probably going to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. There's just no reason to not. So we'll see. I think it's good. I believe in the best survive, you know, the strongest survive. So we'll see how Holy it shakes shit. out the next year or so. Yeah, only time will tell. So, well, man, we know your time is valuable and obviously a lot of meat on this show. So I greatly appreciate you jumping on with us and sharing your insight on, you know, where kind of retail is, kind of the lessons that you've learned over the years. It's it's very valuable for us personally, and it's very valuable for our listeners. So we appreciate it. Well, I think both Clayton, you know that I think you're a great guy and you're an example of a a good guy in this business. And I really appreciate your friendship. I appreciate you guys having me on. It's it's fun to talk shop. I usually just knock it around in my head. So it's good to talk with some other smart guys and see how dumb my ideas are. But um, (laughs) seems to be working all right for you. So. Yeah. Time so. will tell. The game's not over, you know. Are you guys doing anything out here in our neck of the woods, Trent, in Albuquerque throughout New Mexico? We'd love to. We we are trying to. Um, you know, I think that COVID is getting out there has been challenging during COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like to make sure that the good local restaurants are open when I come, and that's not the case right now. So um <laughs> I can promise I'll be on the on the tarmac the minute the, the city opens back up. I think it's a great market. Um, I love the culture of Albuquerque. It's full of a bunch of good people and um, yeah. it's just a great town. So we'd, we'd love to do as much business as we can out there. All right. Well, great. We will certainly keep that in mind. Yeah. Thank you guys very much, man. Y'all have a great weekend. Thank All you, right. Trent. You too. Take okay. Good. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hey listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. If you feel someone within your network would benefit and learn from this podcast, please feel free to share this or any other episode with them. If you feel you have benefited from this podcast, please leave us a review on any platform where you listen to podcasts. We greatly appreciate your support and feedback, and we look forward to connecting with you on the next show. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, stay educated.